Welcome to another episode of the Sawdust and Fire podcast. We are your host. I am Hunter Johnson. And I'm Thomas Baldridge. Boy, Thomas, we about to knock another year out here, buddy. Yes, sir. We are getting close. Christmas is coming up and about to start a new year. Oh. 2023 wow i know i know ain't it crazy seems like it goes by so fast man it really does i mean you know the days just creep by when i was waiting to be 16 and waiting to be 21 and boy now that i'm uh got a little older than that well they just fly by the months click by and it's uh here we are finishing up another year and man it just uh It just don't seem possible. Yeah. You know, I I think that everybody is so much more busy nowadays than what they were, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago, that it's not just a perception that things are going by quicker. You know, it, it really does because we're so busy. We just go from one thing to the next, one season to the next. And, and we get in that, that vicious cycle and, and, you know, used to, uh, you know, we didn't have all this stuff that, that we got bogged down with or involved with or wrapped up with. And, and time did seem to go by slower. Yep. Yeah, it really did. And, uh, you know, that kind of, that kind of leads me into what I would like to talk about this week here on the podcast is, uh, you know, it seems like, I am constantly working and staying super, super busy. Seems like every year I'm busier and busier and busier. And, you know, there needs to come a point that you actually get some stuff done. Um, You know, I sat on a deer stand this year, and every stand I sat on, I look around me, and I see things that I should have done, that I wish I would have done, that, boy, you know, I'm not really seeing any beneficial trees upwind of me here. You know, if I would have cut out two or three acres of that, I'd have some some prime deer habitat, turkey habitat, um, quail habitat, and uh, I'd probably be sitting here seeing more deer right now. Um, so you you have that thought while you're sitting there, and then maybe you get that done next year. Maybe you don't. But um, be kind of nice. I'm going to have to start writing plans for myself um, and detailing them to the point and, and not setting my goals so high that I can't possibly get it all done, but having goals that I know I can reach and accomplish so that I can sit on a stand and feel accomplished and feel successful instead of sitting on a stand looking at all the things I wish I would have done. You have that happen? Oh yeah, all the time. You know, for for me, uh now I, I can get some help from kids and and nephews and and dad and things like that. But in a lot of cases, um if if it's gonna get done, I'm gonna be the one that has to do it. That's right. There That's ain't right. nobody else. And That's right. uh and then the the second part of that is, is the others that may help, 
don't really know exactly what I'm planning on doing or, or what I need to do. So then I have to take time to describe it and explain it and walk them through it so they understand, you know, right. so I'm training them or educating them, which is fine. That's what you should do to your buddies and your family and all that. But I'm trying to train and educate them, which then takes longer to get that done. That's right. That's right. Yeah, that that really makes it tough. You know, if you can have somebody that that understands it as much as you do and shares that same vision that you share, somebody that you can bounce ideals off of. And I really think that's why you and I have become such good friends is we're doing the exact same thing. And we're both really connected to what we've got. We're just doing it an hour, an hour apart here in Arkansas with a slightly different terrain. But we understand the struggles that each other has to try to accomplish our goals for habitat. Right. right. Well, and then, you know, uh, we live in a world that is uh, driven by podcasts and social media and, you know, what content you're sharing and, and then what relationships you're making in the industry. And it's also right here at Christmas time. And what I really want to do for you and I both is to be a pro staff for an underwear and sock manufacturer. Man, I need that. If we could get somebody that made socks that were legitimately comfortable and didn't make your feet sweat and didn't get a hole in them in less than a month, I would be the pro staff guy for that sock company. Yeah. And I'm all about that. I, I really hope Santa's pretty good to me this year because he's been coming up kind of short the last couple of years in the underwear and sock department. Man, when I was a kid, I used to be so aggravated. My grandma would always give me no matter what other presents. And she always gave me other presents. But no matter what other presents she gave me, I always got a bag of socks and underwear, maybe T-shirts, you know, white undershirts. Yeah, yeah. And, and I used to think what a wasted gift that was. And now I'm like, my grandma's gone on to be with the Lord. And I'm like, man, somebody's got to fill her shoes with the with the socks and underwear and, and white T-shirts. I'm telling you, I'm telling you. Yeah, it's, uh, uh, you know, I saw a deal on there the other night, an old boy standing there in the living room looking at the presents under the tree and a pair of ratty underwear on, holes all in them, and, and uh, just trying to figure out which box under there might have underwear in it. <laughs> yes. I saw that you shared on Facebook. That was pretty funny. <clears throat> but, you know, I, I, you and I are in that same boat. But, you know, so think about this. The average guy, let's say, uh, you know, you and I are here on the farm all the time, and this is what we do. But the average guy has a job, He, you know, probably 40 hours a week. Then on top of that, he's probably got a wife and some kids. So how much time in a year is the average guy able, you know, we get all probably overzealous about what we're doing and people are like, how do they do this? And how do they do that? Or I think more so just as much as the, how is the, you know, the application is how do they do that time-wise? Right. Right. And that, that is a huge factor. Yeah. You, you take, what do we got? 52 weeks in a year. Say a guy's going to take a couple weeks vacation. Maybe if he's been there a while, he'll take three or four weeks. So 
he's going to take a, a week or two in the summer with his family to go wherever when the kids are out of school. He's going to take a week or two to hunt and do things like that. So, uh, you know, if he's lucky and, and, and not everybody's uh, uh, as uh, understanding as Chuck, Chuck May's wife is, you know, where he's gone every weekend or every, every <laughs> afternoon to do work on the farm. Not, not every wife is that understanding. Yep. So if, if you figured it up, I would be surprised if the average guy was able to put together 10 to 16 weekends in a year to do work on a property. I think for most young guys that have small kids or, or, you know, elementary to teenage school kids, that's not possible. I mean, you know, when, when our boys was in uh, high school, Dana was going one direction with one kid. <clears throat> I was going another direction with other kids. They were both playing baseball and it was four nights a week. And she yep. may be going to the Northwest part of the state or Northeast part of the state. And I'm going to the opposite Southwest or Southeast part of the state. And we're living on gas station food. And, you know, I got buddies now that have two or three kids that are involved in everything from volleyball, softball, basketball, soccer, football, underwater crocheting. I mean, they, they sign up for every single thing they can sign up for. And mom and dad has to be at those events, which, I mean, I'm not trying to discourage anybody from going to those events, but, you know, um, to get some things done, you maybe had to be like that buddy of mine that always said that uh, when his kids were growing up, he was going to encourage them to suck at sports. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so he could get some more stuff done on the farm. Well, you, I mean, you're right. And then, you know, for me, you throw in church, uh, you know, on a Sunday and, uh, man, you're, you're, if you're just a, a guy who can squeeze an afternoon or a weekend in, then you are really limited maybe to four to eight weekends a year that you could get something done. That's right. So if we, if we were that guy, you know, how would we wind up being very, you know, all these new catchphrases that irritate me now. Uh, and I hear a lot of them at church. Everybody wants to talk about intentionality and being intentional and all this bull. So what well, I'm like, what does that even mean? Does anybody even know what that means? You know, be intentional and all this stuff. Well, we can be intentional or at least organized and, and do certain projects that we intended to do and not be haphazard about it. Right. The way we can do that is with a plan and some notes, maybe, maybe some time in the field, make some notes. Even if you're sitting on deer stand today and, um, and you're looking at what projects you would like to do, uh, you're sitting on your deer stand thinking, man, if I would have edge feathered this food plot, these deer would be coming out here in the middle of this thing a whole lot better than what I'm hoping they do right now. That's right. So, so I've got a spot. I, that exact thing happened just three nights ago. I'm sitting on a deer stand <clears throat> and I've got a, there's a little old greenbriar patch where I've wind and blowed down a couple of oak trees and has grown up in greenbriar. And it's about 75 yards from the stand. 
and it's right along the edge of a transition where like an old logging road used to be and then it kind of transitions into uh, a wetlands uh, of some sort and you know I'm sitting there in the stand and I got the wind right and I'm watching that greenbrier thicket up there because there's always been a buck that's bedded right there in that greenbrier yep. thicket yep. but I guess there wasn't one there that night because uh, he didn't get up and come out when it started getting dark. Um, but the whole time I'm looking at all the trees around this and most of them, I hate to keep using the word junk trees, but when they're sweet gums and they're uh, bitter pecans and they're hackberries and elms and maples and, you know, they're really not serving a purpose 80 foot in the air. Um, and there's, you know, I could just from the deer stand looking at it, I could cut out, I could make two or three acres that would be phenomenal escape cover for quail and turkey, deer bedding, winter food source for deer, fawning cover, um, help guard against predation, um, uh, on fawns and turkey poults and quail chicks, um, and it wouldn't take me an hour with a chainsaw to fix that spot. But I'm sitting there in a stand for the last two years thinking about the same thing and it hasn't got done yet. Yep. Yep. Uh, I, I think if you take some notes and however you do that, if you write them in a pat notepad or if you uh, actually put them on in the notes on your phone or, or maybe you got a fancy app you use. If you make those notes one afternoon after supper, you would be well advised to sit down and write a, a plan. And yep. it doesn't have to be, you know, we can get into the rabbit hole of, you know, more specific details based on a certain ecotype or whatever, but if we just make a, a, a honeydew list for the farm. That's right. A, a to-do list, you know, that says, okay, I want to make sure that I get this one food plot edge feathered. You know, last year, I wanted to get one side of one food plot edge feathered. I mean, that was my goal is I want to get this entire side edge feathered. Yep. And so, so I, you know, I worked on it until I did. But you know, I'm sitting in the deer stand now saying, boy, I wish I would get the other side edge feathered. So there's certain times of the year that some of these projects uh, either have to be done or it makes more sense to do them. Right. And and right now after deer season is, uh, or at the end of deer season, some folks are still rolling, I guess, uh, is a great time to start doing some edge feathering. Or to maybe maybe you make some escape cover. You know, you go out there and and you might make, uh, you know, down woody tree structure for escape cover for quail, which needs to be about fifteen hundred square feet. I think is the number. And if you got an old field setting that that you're doing that type of stuff in, put you one or two of those down woody trees. Go cut the cedars. And just drag them up there and pile them, you know, in not a tight, tight pile like you push with a dozer, but put them in a pile, about 1,500 square foot pile, 
where those quail can have an escape cover there and then go, you know, go a little ways from it and do another one. So they've got another place to get to. That's and, right. um, you know, everything's going to benefit from that at some point, you know, your, your, your songbirds all the way to your deer. Yep. So, you know, I, I, I think when you start talking about, okay, I'm going to do, do a plan, people get overwhelmed because I, I did, you yes. know, what do I do? I mean, my war, uh, there's a lot of work that needs to be done here. How am I ever going to get this all done? And, you know, then, then you get overwhelmed and sometimes you, you miss stuff or you don't get it done at all. That's right. That's right. You know, I don't want to get too deep into this because I know, I know you walked your property uh, a couple of weeks ago with someone and and y'all are devising a plan based on uh eco types um that you've got across the property and we want to have them come on and and uh talk about that with us and we also want to talk about uh another podcast that we're going to do pretty soon in the future is how to select a consultant um to uh that you know you can trust and has you and your wildlife's best interest at heart. But there's a lot of things that we can do on our own as individuals that, that most anybody could do. If they can just identify a few of the tree species on their farm. And, you know, so, so that's one of the things that I'm working on right now um, is it, you know, it's deer seasons wrapping up Um we're fixing to freeze up, so there's not going to be a lot of duck hunting. I mean, the weatherman just said this morning, they're talking about it being two degrees here Friday morning. Um, yeah. That's that's going that's tough on an Arkansas boy. Um, oh, yeah. It's tough on Arkansas wildlife. They're not used to that kind of stuff. So, you know, it really gets me to thinking, do I have protection for my quail, for my, my turkeys, for my deer? Um, how many am I going to lose? You know, this is bottomland hardwoods and it's going to freeze up. And now you've got deer trying to walk on ice, trying to move around in ice. Um, you know, can, do they have enough thermal cover to stay warm and protect them? Or am I going to lose some, you know, the really young or the old or some that's a little bit sick, maybe they got wounded somehow during hunting season. Um, you know, do we have protection to, uh, in habitat wise to protect all of these critters. And so one of the things that I'm going to make an, a point to do while we're in this cold snap is I want to just kind of, I've been doing it a little bit off and on, but uh, I'm going to use a combination of Onyx and um, the, the um, uh, map features and the uh, track uh, that you can set for Onyx. And I am going to get on the side-by-side, -side, bundle up real good, turn on my tracker, and I'm going to ride every road and trail on the property so that I've got it locked in on Onyx. Then I'm going to go through, I'm going to stop at every tree stand and drop a waypoint where every tree stand is. I'm going to go to every duck hole and drop a waypoint in a different color for every duck hole so I can see them all on a map. And then... I'm going to start walking and looking at, at my plant and tree species 
to figure out what's beneficial and what's not. And, you know, the, the best I've heard it put is uh, another uh, habitat consultant that I was talking to here a while back described all of those plants and trees that's growing on your property as employees. And yeah. they're out there working for you and working for your wildlife. And if they're not pulling their weight, if they're not a benefit and asset to the overall goal, then they need to go. Um, they need fired. So, um, and you fire them with a herbicide or a chainsaw. So that is a lot of what I'm going to do is I would like to, once I get my maps and everything on Onyx like I want them, I can bring them up on this computer screen and or even on my phone when I'm sitting there watching TV with the, the wife at night um, and look at say, you know, hey, I got a big void here that would make a good bedding thicket or this stand, we always hunt it on a Southwest wind. You know, if I could get a hundred yards Southwest of here and evaluate an area that I don't have a lot of beneficial plant and tree communities there, then I could cut some of that down. And, you know, I would love with these extreme temperatures that we're having to have some four to 12 foot tall thickets full of green briar and and a uh, lot of, of stump sprouts, woody stems, um, small trees, shrubs, stuff like that, because that's what your deer are going to eat all winter. That's that's what they're depending on. Um, so, you know, that's my goal here for the next couple of weeks is to really evaluate some stuff and get it on paper and then make a list of what is the most important things that I want to get done and make sure that when I do have that two hour window here or a weekend here that I'm actually out there doing something that I can set in a tree stand this winter and be proud of. Feel right. accomplished with. That's right. Yeah. And you know, the basics for, for most people, I, I saw a post this morning. Uh, I can't remember, remember if it was on, uh, you know, one of the food plotting uh, groups, but it was, it was basically a post that said, look, I've got, and he had two photographs. I've got this 40 acre track that belongs to my family. They've told me to do whatever I want to do here. And so, you know, the deer usually travel on this end of it. And I think I'm going to go out here and make a food plot somewhere. You know, what are y'all's thoughts? And the photograph is obviously overstocked closed canopy forest, although the leaves are off the trees right now and there's nothing growing, you know, right. it's, it's really a desert. So, you know, for, for most properties, that's kind of what you're really going to run into. And it's a really easy thing to think about, you know, TSI. Yep. I don't care how, how you do whatever, if you're hacking and squirting, if you're cutting and dropping, if you're, commercially logging i i don't care what you're doing but you need to fire some of them employees because yep. they're they're not doing anything for you and and i i can't remember this remember the study but uh you know you can cut half of your oak trees and double your acre in production that's right so get rid of some of these guys that you value so much burn burn and burn then you can think about food plots. If you want to put in food, you and I both got food plots. We're not against food plots. We love food plots. And uh, that's great. 
just be re realistic about, you know, what you're able to do on a 40 acre track with a quarter acre food plot. I mean, right. you, you know, right. I mean, you, do you want to have a quarter acre food plot uh, on your 40 acres or do you want to have your 40 acres in production? That's a giant food plot. That's right. That's right. So the way I look at food plots is a little differently. I look at them as kill plots. Yes. You know, it, I, I don't focus as much on them as being able, and, and they do provide, especially like this winter. You know, I've got some some oats that uh, last couple of years ago when we had our snow mageddon, you know, that survived very well. They were very cold hardy. Uh, it's a buck oat, and it, it you know, it, there's a lot. I didn't even know this until several years ago, but there's a lot of different varieties. Some are more cold hardy than others. Some deer like, like better than others. I mean, there's, there's thousands of different types of oats. So, you know, my, my deal was that, you know, the deer, I took pictures of it. We're digging the snow out to get to those oats. So in times like that, high stress periods, things like that. Yeah. Your food plot is, is doing good. And, uh, and that's wonderful, but I look at it more as a kill plot. That's right. I, I want those deer coming in there and I want to feed my deer across my landscape because deer are going to move and eat. That's what they're going to do. Right. And, uh, but well, we call I, those supplemental, supplemental food plots for a reason. Yes. They're, they're right. just supplementing, um, their, their normal diet. It's like, you know, uh, you're supplementing your diet with an occasional salad. Um, I, I'm or, not, or some, some well, yeah, I'm not either, but you know, <laughs> normal people are, but, right. but, but that's not what they're making a living on. Right. And then you, you go from that to also looking at the value of trees, shrubs, greenbrier, escape cover, native warm season grasses and forbs. Yep. You're all these natives, man, cannot be understated. I mean, we we overlooked that like crazy. And if you could rewind the clock to the 80s, rewind it to the 70s, and rewind it to the 50s and 60s, your farm looked way different than what it does now. Oh, absolutely, 100%. The thickets, the plum thickets, the... The, the, the fence rows, uh, oh. rolled up fence rows, all of them. Yeah, and and now everything's got to be so manicured, you know. It's yep. just it's just crazy to me what we have changed it into, and then we wonder where, you know, like I don't remember what Autobahn's deal is, but like where half half the songbirds are, are extinct. We wonder why turkeys are declining. We can't figure this out. Everybody's blaming it on everything from fire ants to predators to to uh, chemicals being used to all these different things. You know, when in fact, uh, and the same way with the quail, quail, quail have gone down so much across, you know, across the country, but the big change has been habitat. So nope. when you sit and start making these plans or your to-do list, your honey-do list for the farm, it's real easy to say, okay, I know there's some things I need. I know I need to open this canopy. So TSI. If you want to call it timber stand improvement, wildlife stand improvement, forest stand improvement, or just kill them all and let God sort them out, I don't care what you call it, but open the dang canopy. That's right. That's right. Bend some trees. Right. Edge feather. Burn and burn and burn. Yes. Yes. 
yes. your food plots. Figure you out whatever you want to do on a food plot. Edge feather the fool out of that thing. It will make your food plot better, you know? I got uh, asked the other night, you know, me and Lanky went on a track the other night, and uh, I was looking at a guy's food plot. We were standing there at the truck, and out in front of us was this food plot. And of course, we had our headlights on, and and it was after the track. We were standing there talking, and he asked me, uh, so what do you do for a living? And I said, well, I manage habitat, uh, wildlife habitat. And he says, well, good. I'm glad you came tonight. Maybe you can answer my question. That food plot you see out there, he said, there is about 12, 10 to 12 different species of plants growing. But how do I get my deer to eat it? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, I laughed about like you did. And I said, well, what, what, what do you mean get your deer to eat it? Well, they're not eating it. He said, they'll walk across it to get to that thicket over there. And they'll walk across it to go out to the crop fields out there. But they're not coming in and eating it until a uh, really late season, like January, February. And then they just wipe it out. Yep. And I said, well, because here's the deal. They don't need it until then. You're surrounded by big ag. We're here in Arkansas in the Delta. And there is literally um, a million acres of soybeans around him. And cornfields and rice fields. And there's plenty of places. The, the deer don't struggle at all until after all the crops are cut. Then there's enough. Uh, residue left over enough waste grain that the deer are still in pretty good shape up until the rut then the rut happens and they've got other things on their mind and then when the rut's over it's when the deer start hammering their food plots but they wipe them out so quick that there's no benefit to these deer they move in there there may be 20 deer on a one acre food plot and in two nights it's gone well the problem is he hasn't done any TSI, FSI work. And, you know, we have learned through our visual observation as well as tons of, of research that the majority of a deer's diet comes from uh, woody brows, from brambles. You know, Adam and Matt just done a podcast a couple of days ago on what deer eat in the winter. And people say, well, you mean sticks? You know, all the deer's got to eat sticks? Yeah, that's what we mean. That's called woody browse, and that's a preferred food. That's that's 70 or 80% of their diet across most of the U.S. year-round is the ends of, of the, the limbs on shrubs and small trees and stump sprouts and nibbling off green briar and stuff like that. That's where the majority of their diet always comes from. But you've taken all of these deer that lived in these bean fields around you up until it was all cut, and now you're trying to cram them all into this little woods lot, and they're not getting what they need. So they don't eat your food plot until they get hungry, and then they wipe it out so quick. It's like I was at a buffet here the other night. It was a pizza buffet, and there's 30 people in there and there's no pizza on the buffet. And when they bring out one pizza and set it down, guess what happens? Yeah, Especially with pepperoni. Yeah. It's gone. Just bam. Yeah. And most of the people didn't get none. Yeah. And you end up leaving hungry. Well, I, I won't get off into the rabbit hole of what, 
what I like to plant um, and why. But <clears throat> you know, people also don't don't think about there. There's choice food, you know, yes. and um, man, you hit the nail on the head. If they slide a cheese pizza out there and the meat lovers, yep, I'm getting the meat lovers, yep. And if there's a salad, you know, on that same bar, I ain't ever touching the salad. I mean, I'm gonna have to be slap starved to death before I ever get me some salad. Yep. I mean, it's gonna be, it's gonna be bad before you ever see old Tom eating some salad. Yep. And uh, you know, deer are similar, and. Uh, you know, we don't, we don't think about that. We, we don't look at the value sometimes of shrubs and green briars and woody brows. And, you know, the first thing we think about is recreating what we see happening on television. You know, right. I need to wear this kind of camouflage, shoot this kind of gun or bow, have this kind of equipment, and I've got to have a food plot with the shooting house that looks like it does on the outdoor channel. Right. We don't, we don't think further than that because that's what we've been indoctrinated to see over and over and over again. Yep. That's right. So, you know, I think you just sit down and you start making that list. Uh, and then, you know, here's the deal. When them deer do move into that guy's food plot, it is time to whack them and stack them. Yep. It is DMAP 101, shoot every doe that comes out there until you're tired of cleaning them and then shoot some more. So that's, you know, that's something that uh, obviously with, with some guidance from your local state agencies or biologists or whomever, consultants or whatever you're using, you know, you can get some ideas. And then the part of that that people overlook is collecting the data. This is not just a, a, a get rid of the deer deal. It's analyze the, that, that data off of those deer, you know, jawbones, what's age structure look like, weights, lactation, all of those kinds of things. What are we, what are we seeing? What are we shooting? What are we producing? How can we produce a healthier, more mature deer and, and, and not be, not have, you know, 20, uh, deer on your food plot that range from, you know, 80 to hundred pounds, let's have five that range from 125 to 150. Right. And that's, I think that's a big disconnect that a lot of people don't understand. You know, <clears throat> I didn't understand it. The first time I heard the phrase, if you want bigger bucks, you got to shoot more does. Yep. I, I never, I didn't understand that until it was really broke down and explained to me that, you know, and ever and then of course, you know, this is a whole nother rabbit hole. People get in the well, my my buck to doe ratio isn't that far off. Well, it's never gonna be that far off. And uh, you know, we're not we're not buck to doe ratio is something that I never even think about. And most biologists don't ever even really consider buck to doe ratio. We're we're shooting mouths that we have to feed. That's it. And since we don't know what that buck is going to develop into, we don't shoot those bucks till they're mature. So the best way to do that is to just pound the does that are on the landscape. And, you know, for every one you shoot, then you are gaining um, more native browse, more native forage, natural forage for the deer to eat. 
Um, and if you can do that in combination with some habitat management and putting sunlight on the ground, now you don't want to ask that question on habitat managers because somebody will tell you hinge cut every tree on the property and plant the whole thing in miscanthus. Um, oh Lord. And, uh, you know, that's definitely not what we're talking about. We're talking about a, a balance of native grasses, native forbs and brambles, uh, along with, uh, woody sprouts, woody stems across the landscape to where your entire woods lot is a food source. And then we've got key sure enough nasty thickets in areas that the deer can bed and can be a scape cover for your birds um but there's a you know this this whole deer thing isn't rocket science but people seem to make it a lot more complicated than it needs to be well and then here's another thing it just irritates me to no end is all these guys that think they're shooting a quote-unquote coal buck yes and i just read that deal uh nda put out you know, about genetics, which we've known a lot, a long time. Uh, two things. One, you know, 50% of that comes from your dough. So how do you know what she's throwing? Two, there was a 120 inch buck that was throwing bigger bucks than any of the other deer. Yep. So, you know, why he was 124 inches or whatever he was, and he's throwing much larger, you know, bucks. I mean, how, what in the world? So when you start thinking about genetics and what you're quote unquote culling, look, here's the deal. If you feel the need to post something on social media with your photograph and then post an excuse as to why you harvested that deer, don't, don't do that. Yep. You know, I tell my crew crew around here, especially in the, in the, in the time frame that we are in right now, on trying to collect data and analyze what we got. Shoot what makes you happy. Be happy about it. Don't make no excuses for it. That's right. That's right. Now, here we use the term coal buck a lot, and we use the term management buck a lot, but it's not what most people think. We're not trying to control genetics. Genetics, right. We're That's not what trying we're... to get inferior deer out of here. We have found when we use the word coal or we use the word management buck, <clears throat> we're describing a buck that is mature he's four and a half year old plus and he has a a small rack for whatever reason that's never going to make it on the wall of the hunting lodge well it's kind of like you were telling zach the other day he's got a a deer on camera up in the hills uh so so a very different habitat than than where you are in in, in the bottoms and that deer's at least three and a half years old. He's a nice deer. And you told him to shoot him. He's like, well, yeah, but I want to see what he grows into in, you know, year four, year five, or whatever. And we're sitting there going, that deer ain't ever going to get much bigger than what he is right now. You, no, you, don't, you don't have the habitat. If you want to see what he's going to do in year four and five, you better do some more TSI work, and you, be you better get some stuff going to be able to nutritionally put that shot in his arm and even then he may never be bigger and it ain't about trying to improve your genetics i mean you you just trying to shoot progress in genetics is is just i mean on on free range deer i don't think it's possible 
No, that's right. And that, you know, back to the, the deer I told Zach to shoot, you know, that deer is three and a half year old. He would be an eight point, but he doesn't have brow tines. Yep. He might, he might be 70 inches of antler at, at most at three and a half year old and no brow tines. And he's not going to grow into a 150 plus deer in the next year or two. That that's a prime example. Now we, we try not to ever shoot a deer until he's four and a half or older, but there is some exceptions that we will jump into at three and a half when we know that that deer is just not going to. Now, if he would have had brow tines and, and be a 10 pointer and be three and a half, we're going to let that deer live to five and a half or six and a half. We're going to see, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to reduce the number of miles we're feeding and we're going to have an outstanding number of acres of native forage and browse, natural forage and browse for these deer to eat, because that is a prime example that that three and a half year old 10 pointer that we want to see what he can do. Well, here, here's the way miles. I, here's the way I look at that. Cause I've seen, more than one biologist, especially in high fence, that have collected antlers from deer each year and can show their progression. You know, he may be a spike year one, and yes. everybody's like, oh, he'll never be more than a spike. Well, we know that's a bunch of bull. Yeah, that that circle could turn into a wall hanger. So I don't look at it as much as I, I'm I'm trying to uh get, you know, maybe I don't think this guy's ever going to turn into anything uh, of value. I look at it kind of like I look at my does. So, you know, Zach's like, well, I got five bucks on camera. And I'm like, well, if you shoot two of them, that is going to give the other three more nutrition on the landscape because they're not eating seven to 10 pounds of forage a day that you just provided 20 extra pounds of forage roughly for those other three that's right without doing any more tsi work or, or fire or whatever so the way i look at like what you're talking about your management deer your management buck i look at that the same way i look at shooting does i i need to remove some mouths from the landscape here because we are overpopulated and 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 when i say overpopulated i'm you can apply that in a lot of different ways but overpopulated in order to provide uh the healthy quality deer that I'm looking for. So I'm going to take out some doe. And when I see a guy like that, uh, you know, I'm going to give my other bucks that have more potential, the nutrition by taking him out. Yep. Go ahead and just cut him. Just, yep. just and you know, have fun. He, he's eating 10 pounds of native natural forage a day. A day he's in and, your or, or in your food plot or in your corn bay pile or whatever he's eating. That's right. That's thirty six hundred pounds of food a year. Think that about you're feeding the deer that you're just going to let die of old age eventually because he's not when he reaches at maturity. If he's not what you want rack size, he's not ever going to be. Right. And. By taking him out, we provide that one buck that we take out provides 3,600 pounds of forage each year for the remainder of the herd. Plus, on top of that, this is a fairly new farm, and we need more data. 
We've been yep. shooting 20 does off of this uh, roughly 1,000, 1,200-acre farm. Um, it's it's 1,000 acres in one block and has another 200 or 250 detached from it a couple miles up the road. So basically, off of this 1,000-acre block, we've been shooting 20 does a year for the last three to four years off of it. And we haven't taken any bucks off of it except maybe one or two. Well, now the time has come that we need some data. So he is a big bodied mature deer with a small rack that's never going to make it to the wall of the lodge, no matter how old he is. He's going to die with a small rack of old age. So let's get him out of there. Let's quit feeding him and let's pull a jawbone. That's going to tell us we're saying he's three and a half year old, but the jawbone is going to help confirm that. Or we're saying he's four and a half year old and the jawbone is going to help confirm that. So that's going to make us better at judging age on the hoof by looking at game cam pictures. And it's also going to help start providing us some buck weights so that we can tell, you know, we're already doing it with does. We're weighing every single doe. We're checking for lactation. We're checking for fetuses to see if they've been bred. And if, if we just don't have any buck data. So, you know, what is the average weight of our three and a half year old bucks, four and a half year old bucks, five and a half year old bucks. And we want to see that weight increase. So we know that what we're doing is working. So we have the doe data. We've watched bond recruitment increase. We've watched doe weights on mature does increase, but we don't have buck data. So yep. we've got to start shooting some bucks off of that. And it hasn't had any bucks killed off of it in five or six years now. So Right, right. Since we've done all this work and the neighbors around us are pounding everything that moves. I mean, we've got a 40 acre block that came up for sale a couple of years ago and they tried to get us to buy it. We didn't want no part of it. And they have shot nine bucks off of that 40 acres this year. Good. Nine bucks off of 40 acres. And anything from a little old yearling four point up to a little old basket rack, two and a half year old, eight point. And they have, you know, but what's going to happen is our deer is going to quit going over there with them putting that kind of pressure on it. So I'm not worried about that bad neighbor that we've got. And I'm not going to shoot things because I think he might shoot it because we've got enough habitat that our deer is just going to quit going to that property. And well, I'm going to tell you something, uh, and this is a whole nother deal. We, I better not chase this rabbit. I'm just going to kick it out of the brush pile and, and let the rabbit go. But, um, John, John Butler told me several years ago that the game and fish should give out tags in the state of Arkansas based on what land you own or lease. So instead of buying everybody that can walk in Walmart or get online or, or go to Game and Fish can get four to six deer tags that everybody that's got $36, $35, 50 or whatever in their pocket can get four to six deer tags and they're hunting on five acres or 40 acres and they're killing that kind of numbers of deer. He said that it should go to the landowner, which they do this in some places. It should, those tags should go to the landowner and that should be based on analysis from your game and fish biologist as to how many tags this particular area or your farm should should be getting. Now that 
that puts a lot more responsibility on those biologists. And, and I don't know if they're capable of doing that, but, uh, but there is some, some thought in when you got a 40 acre block and they've shot nine bucks off of it, that is gross negligence and mismanagement. Yes. Yes. And you know, this same property, I'm sure that they're baiting turkey and they're shooting every gobbler they see. I would not doubt it at all. Those, those people like that are the guys that, I mean, that's the problem and that, that gives hunting a bad name, but let me, let me shift gears on you on something else while we're talking about some thoughts that I do this as well when I'm, you know, if you want to title this thoughts from the deer stand or whatever, it is safety. So, you know, I'm sending, you know, in a lot of cases, uh, kids to deer stands, uh, grandparents to deer stands. Um, and, and I'm sitting there thinking, how can I make this deer stand safer? You know, do we have uh, stair? I built staircases on all our shooting houses because a few years ago, my dad was trying to get in a deer stand with a kid, had the kid in front of him. And he pulled something in his shoulder while he's got a gun or he's got a backpack and, you know, this and that and the other. And, and you're like, oh, well, that shouldn't happen because he should have a rope to pull all this stuff up. But, man, when you're taking kids and you're trying to sit there, you always got all kinds of stuff. He, he feeds more candy on a deer stand than they get at Halloween. <laughs> right. And, and uh, so trying to make things easier and safer from, you know, and that, that goes not just to tree stands. But that goes into what you and I were talking about the other day with Caleb. That goes into chainsaws. It goes into ATVs. It goes into a lot of different things. And right. uh, so when you're talking about doing some cut and drop, you need to have some idea of what kind of safety gear that you need and how you need to act or what you should or shouldn't do with the chainsaw. Well, that's like these guys that are doing this hinge cutting over their head. That's stupid. It's the most ignorant, idiotic thing I've ever seen in my life that you have the mentality that, well, if I'm going to hold deer, I've got to hinge cut this over the top of my head so that these trees can fall the way. And I'll, and, and then I'll post it on Facebook and everybody will know that I can do a proper hinge cut. Well, when I say it, all I think is you're just an idiot. Yep. Or no way I'm running a chainsaw up over my head to hinge cut trees to keep them alive laying on the ground it's stupid or you're the guy that's got six trees cut and you're trying to cut the last one the domino effect and make them all fall at the same time because yep. you saw that on axemen yep. you know 10 years ago and you think that makes you cool makes you a good chainsaw operator it don't it makes you in most cases uh there there are some some very skilled guys out there that might be able to do that kind of stuff but man, what it does when you put that on social media and you're you're promoting that kind of stuff and hinge cutting above your head, big tree, you're just an idiot and somebody's gonna get hurt or killed. It is not safe. Right, right. And you know, I understand the hinge cutting thing to direct deer, but I can do the same thing with down trees. And I understand that in places that have really extreme weather and they have a short growing season or they don't have a growing season, you know, South Texas, 
way up north where the growing seasons are short and the temperatures are so cold and you can't cut a tree and get a proper stump sprout or, or burn it and get a, a good flush of forbs and uh, uh, brambles coming up. I understand the hinge cutting to bring everything down to a lower level, but you just knocked yourself out of getting to burn because you're going to kill whatever you've hinge cutted. Um, and you have made a mess and still got the same problem you had before because that canopy is still there. It's You just lowered it. And these trees are still alive with these canopies on the ground. Um, you know, and, and then, you know, not hinge cutting the right species of trees. You know, there's way more nutrition in a stump sprout than there is in a in a tree that's 80 foot tall, whether it's standing up straight or laying over on the ground. Um, Absolutely. Way more nutrition coming up from a stump sprout. So I personally, I know a lot of people are thinking when we're talking about doing habitat work, I need to run out here and hinge cut. But if you're in an area that gets ample rain and has a long growing season, like the most of the Midwest and the, the Southeast, you're not doing yourself, your property, or your wildlife any favors. You're hurting it. By by doing these big areas of hinge cutting. Right. And, you know, you and I, we're, we're not biologists. So all our biologist friends, they don't like using words like always and never. Yep. And you and I, you and I try and get away with it every once in a while. Right. But in in most cases, this is a horrible idea that that is hindering and hurting your property in many, many ways. Get off of Facebook and get off of YouTube. Quit looking at that stuff. Hey, you know, another thing, I've got a buddy of mine that uh, works for Edward Jones. He's an investment guy. You know, you, you give him your money and he turns it into a lot more money yep. is the idea anyway. And we live, we're living in a really volatile time with all that stuff. But, you know, he was telling me the struggle that he has with, with uh, what he invests in and, and how he does it for people. And people, a lot of people place value on gold and silver. And, you know, they'll be buying up gold and silver, uh, you know, trying to secure their money. And he started telling me why that seems like, uh, why they think it's a good idea, and why they place value on gold and silver. And part of that is because historically, when we were mining, you know, the gold rush, silver rush type stuff, when we were mining those things, people were becoming millionaires off of it. Your average guy was going out West and, and, he was becoming a multimillionaire if he struck gold or, or got a bunch of silver or whatever other, you know, special metal. Well, now that is a not a good strategy for investing your 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 money in your 401k. This is what he was telling me. I'm not a four, I'm not a an investment guy. But I see that same mentality with trees. Yes. Years yes. ago. Yeah. Grandpa said that tree right there is providing a lot of acres for our deer and our turkey and our squirrels. You per, you guard that tree with your life. Yep. That tree is the most valuable thing here. And what we what we undervalued is native warm season grasses, forbs, and shrubs. And 
I'm, I'm, you know, I, I looked at, we talked about one of your places, uh, you know, up in the hills and you've got, you know, an old cattle farm that X number of years ago was planted in, in pine trees and walked away from it until you started doing some work on it a few years ago. And y'all have done extensive uh, commercial timber sale there. And then a lot of habitat work with fire and things like that. And, you know, I told you on a couple areas up there, I would absolutely level them trees and wouldn't leave one standing. And yep. what I would cultivate would be native warm season grasses, forbs, and shrubbery. Well, if we do that, Tom, <clears throat> everybody, right now, nobody wants to go up there and hunt and do anything. If we do that, everybody's going to be up there deer hunting, and we'll probably have to buy bird dogs, too. Yeah. We'll have so yeah. many quail, we'll have to start shooting some of them. Well, think, think I can just tell you what I have seen in a small native grazing demonstration area that, that we've got going. This year, I have big blue stem and Indian grass. Of course, there's other stuff there. There's forbs. There's a little blue stem. There's a lot of other things growing there. But I've got big blue stem that's six foot tall and Indian grass that's six foot tall, even, even some that's taller than that. What I have seen that do in a value of habitat is indescribable. Oh, for sure. Without a doubt. And, and we ain't even talking <laughs> about what we're going to do with cattle grazing that. We're just talking about the wildlife aspect of it. So <clears throat> why, and I don't know how this happened, but somewhere along the line, Grandpa said, boy, if you want to make some money, buy gold. If you want to have a good investment, don't put it in a mason jar and bury it in the backyard. Buy gold. Well, Grandpa also said, don't cut them trees down. Whatever you do, you can't replace them in your lifetime. Well, nope. what we've done is we've become very overstocked, and we lost our native warm season grass fields because we replaced them with fescue bermuda or bahia or some other introduced grass that we were trying to you know do better with <laughs> just you know we lost our forbs and we cleaned everything up and lost our shrubbery and um you know if we can put some of that back that that to me is is one of the my gold that i see the value i place in native warm season grasses and forbs and shrubs is equal to or greater than the trees. Oh, I don't know how many times I've been walking a property with somebody and we walk past a big tree and they say, man, look at the size of that tree. That, that thing's probably worth $4,000. Yeah, Lord, it ain't either. And I'm sitting there looking at the same tree and I'm like, dude, like 200 tops. Yeah, like if you're lucky. $200 tops. And... You know, we done a lot of pulpwood cutting, and I asked a logger. I said, "So what are we? What are we getting off of this pulpwood here?" And he said, "Well, we're getting about a truckload per acre." And I said, "Okay, so about thirty tons of pulpwood per acre." And what's the price of pulpwood? Well, y'all are getting about two dollars a ton. All right, so we're getting sixty bucks a truckload, sixty bucks an acre off of all of this basal area up 120 or 140 because of all of this stuff that is junk and ain't good for anything but pulpwood yep. and you know how long has those how long has have we seen prices like that oh years and years yeah it ain't never getting better 
Well, no. it's not going to get better. No. No. And so if I said here, only about half of this junk is going to grow into that $200 log that we were talking about, $200 tree that we were talking about, and we're saving it for what? Well, and here's another thing. If you talk to a forester who is focused on marketable timber, okay, he can tell you if you TSI around that tree, you do a crop tree release or you just reduce the BA, that tree is going to grow more faster. That's right. So That's right. the end result is cut some trees, kill trees. some trees. Call, call your forester. Get And we're going to do an episode on how to pick the right forester, how to pick the right consultant so that you know you're doing things right. We're going to do that. We had a plan to do today, um, but uh, something come up with our guest, and, and we do have that plan for the near future, how to pick the right consultant. But get you a forester in there. Get you a logger in there. Get rid of that junk. Do that crop tree release. Double your acorn production. Put more sunlight on the ground. Provide more food and cover for, for your critters. And you can actually sit in a tree stand and enjoy the fruits of your labor. Not sit there like I do and look off in the distance thinking, boy, that's just junk over there. It yeah. has zero wildlife value. Well, I can't wait to get in here and do something to that. And if you will take your farm honeydew list and then put a schedule with it. Yep. That says, okay, um, you know, January till whatever, March, I'm going to do prescribed fire and I'm going to do some cut and drop or edge feathering. You know, on those cold days, uh, you know, that you're still going to work up a sweat running a chainsaw. You're going to do some edge feathering, whatever. Okay. So that's your time frame. You start assigning a time frame along with those tasks. Yep. And then maybe in say August until September one, I'm going to do some hack and squirt. And, you know, these guys that are only getting, a half a dozen to a dozen weekends a year to do things like this. And then outside of that, if you have to hire something done, get that contractor in there, whether you're paying for it or you're getting assistance or cost share from, you know, from somebody, um, you know, those things you can kind of oversee and manage, you know, after work. But I'm talking about the guys that are actually out there trying to develop their property themselves uh, you know, that, that only have a few weeks a year, assign those tasks with a time frame. Yes. Say, okay, yeah, you know, you may drive out and see something else that's happened while you've been at work Monday through Friday, and then Friday afternoon or Saturday morning, you show up at the farm and you say, oh, man, look what's going on over here. I need to do X, Y, and Z. Well, there's times that you may need to shift your plan, change your plan, but there's times that you just need to say, okay, that's not what I'm here for. I didn't bring the equipment or have the equipment to deal with that, or I'm on a time frame where some of these things are time sensitive. So yep. I'm going to do what I came to do and next weekend, or, you know, 
Thursday after work, we'll come and take care of that and fix that then. Right That's now, right. we're not going to mess with it. That's and right. that'll keep you on task. And and when when deer season rolls around, the honeydew list goes from all of these different things to hunt and enjoy time in the woods and with your family. That's right. That's right. And, you know, when I sat on the stand the other day looking at this block I was looking at, <laughs> that starts about 75, 80 yards from me and covers probably two to three acres, four acres. You know, I could go in there right now with a leaf blower, backpack blower, and blow around that whole thing in a couple hours. And then light fire to it and just do a slow back burn across it. And I can handle that pretty easy, me and one other guy. And we'll get full wheelers in there with some water tanks on it. And hardwood burns with a back burn goes pretty easy. I've got some red oaks in there that I want to protect, so I don't want to get it hot. Well. Then I'll go in there and tie ribbons around the red oaks that I want to keep. I don't have any white oaks other than overcup in there. But go in there and tie ribbons around the red oaks I want to keep. Then I'll come back and I will cut everything that's like eight inch diameter and down. And I'll use a little old cheap light steel 170 or 180 chainsaw to do it. Something easy to carry. They cost $180 brand new up at the hardware store. And I'll go in there and I'll cut them. And because I want the stump sprout off of my maples, off of my hackberries, off of uh, some of the little oaks, uh, over, uh, little overcup oaks and stuff. I want the stump sprouts off of those because I can control that with fire later on. And then the bigger stuff that I don't want, I'll hack and squirt it and just let it die where it stands. And I can do the leaf blowing in probably two hours. The fire will take about 15 or 20 minutes to burn across it. Then I'm looking at maybe maybe four hours worth of hack and squirting and maybe three hours worth of cut and drop. And I'm done with it. I don't have quail and turkey on this farm here in the bottoms. But I'm done with that spot for probably five to seven years. And it's going to be escape cover and and deer bedding, fawn cover. Um, I'm done with it for five to seven years. Now, I do that up in the hills where I got quail and turkey on, on a farm up there. I'm going to want to come back and burn that every two to three years um, to keep my stuff a little bit smaller. But I'm still going to have some of those bedding thickets escape cover that I'm burning every five to seven. So... And so next year, when I sit there looking at that, and and I've I've just described about a full day's work right there, and you're going to do that to eight spots across your property, then you've got maybe eight days worth of work, and you figure out how to get that done between now and for me, it's when it gets hot, which is uh, here in Arkansas, May June. So I've got about eight days worth of work that I want to get done on this farm over the next three to four months. Yep. And, and, you know, the other thing I think uh, that is easier to do is an initial tracking uh, of, of your land. And what I mean by that is take on X or whatever, whatever you like to use and block your land off in different yep. areas. Yep. Uh, depending on how much acreage you have, 
you know, I've heard a lot of guys use that 80 acre deal where, you know, you're, you're using an 80 acre block and analyzing what's in that 80 and what, what is there and what I need to provide. Some guys do a hundred, some guys do 50 or 40. I think it, I think it needs to be whatever works for you, for you, you yes. know, but it, you don't need to have it larger than when you start getting bigger than 80 or hundred, uh, you know, it gets out and left field and it gets overwhelming. But if you can focus on an area like that, and then if you want to do like I am doing, where you're taking a deep dive into, you know, block one or block A or however you've got your stuff labeled, uh, then I'm looking at specifically in that one block, it may be a, a, a you know, a 25 acre block, and I'm looking at one to five acre segments in that 25 acre blocks of That's what right. what should be there if you want to do that that's fine too but you need to have a basic grid of blocks across your track of ground and instead of trying to you know just eat the entire elephant pick a track that's right that's your one bite at a time say this this 40 or this 80 we're gonna we're gonna tsi this and and that may take me a couple of days, but you know, or five days, or however slow or fast you are, and some depends on topography and how many stems you got and all that kind of stuff. But anyways, then just do it, and that's on your that's on your honey do list for the farm, and that's scheduled from, uh, you know, say July until September. Right. So so those are the things that you're going to work on most when you go to the farm. Right. Uh, during those times and then when hunting season gets here kick back and enjoy hunting season work on dmap work on you know all of those kinds of things herd, and, herd management yep that's and that's you know that's the ultimate goal for all of us is to be able to to set on a tree stand and be successful and have peace of mind yep. or to be able to sit down in the woods during turkey season and call up that long beard and get him to do what you want him to do. Um, or, or in our case, to be able to go out here during duck season and be able to have it set up so that we can manage our water for ducks and, and be able to not only shoot ducks here, but hold ducks on the property without running them off. So those are our ultimate goals that we all strive to get done and, you know, the bottom line is we've got to, through mapping, through walking, through evaluations, we've got to sit down and come up with a plan that that is reasonable, that we can achieve our goals on and see that plan through. Now, next week uh, or in the next few weeks, I ain't going to say next week, but in the next few weeks, we're going to discuss um these plans in a little more depth and we're going to discuss how to pick that consultant because uh um we they can't all be like adam and matt with land and legacy um you've got some consultants that's not going to um uh prescribe what's best for you or your farm and uh we need to know how to pick um the best consultant for our area and what we need to do um if you're going to try to use someone local or, or whatever. So, so we need to, uh, we're going to discuss some of that a little bit, but, but in the meantime, 
temperatures are cold and I think it's cold all the way from Canada to Florida. My mom's in Florida right now and they're talking about close to freezing temperatures down there um, over the next few days. So be a perfect time. Go out, get everything winterized. Y'all unhook your water hoses, put some RV antifreeze in your sprayers, uh, keep them pumps from freezing, keep your fittings from busting and uh, put a little extra straw in your dog houses or take them in, let them sleep on the couch. And once you get that done, get out on X, put your uh, warm boots on and start walking, doing some evaluating and taking some notes. And uh, let's all get a plan and start whittling on some of this stuff. So absolutely. Tom, I enjoyed it, man. I think this is a, a good podcast and uh, maybe this will inspire some people to get out to do, do a few things. And, uh, you know, if y'all have any questions or concerns about this or or think or something we didn't cover, reach out to us. Um, we're on the uh, Land and Legacy Q&A uh, Facebook page. Uh, we're on the Sawdust and Fire page. Uh, we're on several different things. Or just uh, shoot us a PM or something, and uh, we'll uh, we'll be happy to answer any questions. And, and we don't have all the answers, but the great thing about it is we know people that do, and they're just a phone call away. We'll help you all we can. So... We appreciate y'all tuning in this week, and uh, we'll catch y'all next week. Y'all have a Merry Christmas.